Welcome on to the Flexcast. My name's Steve Newell. I'm joined by Liam McGurran. Once again. Joined by Paul Cassidy. Hi there. And by Dominic Corrie. Kia ora. All Flix contributors all are going to talk about Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. We've got some uh, interview audio with Quentin Tarantino to play as well, like every media outlet in New Zealand. Uh, but before that, I uh, just thought I'd quickly take the temperature of you guys about where you thought Tarantino's career was just before going to see the film this week. He's come off uh, Django Unchained and, and Glorious Bastards before that. Paul, what, what were you sort of expecting going into the film? I was kind of expecting a continuation of, of those films. They're kind of a high point. I mean, they're, they're both... They're both great Tarantino films. Um, you know, for me, my first love was uh, Pulp Fiction, of course. So it's, uh, but but Bastards gave me a lot of the same thrills as that. Pulp Fiction is still the masterpiece of of his films. But so, no, I, I had pretty high expectations. Uh, how about you, Dom? I, I loved how they represented mainstream cinema in a really interesting way, that they were the films that lots of people were going to see and that was exciting about them. I just got a little bit um, eye-rolly in certain parts of them. Just they felt a bit too indulgent for me. So I was a bit like, okay, what's going to happen with this? It very much felt like the third film in that kind of grouping and uh, Hateful Eight before I saw it. And so I was a little bit, um, I don't want to say sceptical, but I was maybe a little bit wary. My all-time favorite Quentin Tarantino film is still Reservoir Dogs. I mean, I love Pulp Fiction, but there's just Reservoir Dogs just feels like a Swiss clock to me. And I guess I missed a little bit of that um, tightness that his earlier films maybe had compared to his later stuff. So I was maybe a tiny bit, um, a tiny bit um, guarded in terms of really embracing him these days. But I mean, I still have, I still love him, and I love that those films were hits and they're amazing movies. Um, he's he's always been an idiosyncratic filmmaker, but it sort of feels a little bit that. Uh, He's moved away from leading the culture, like as he did with Pulp Fiction and, and Reservoir Dogs before it, and just sort of really been uh, forging his own path, often increasingly uh, self-indulgent, but in a wonderful way, direction. Um, so yeah, I sort of expected a continuation from those previous two films as well. And uh, with the bonus of him just, I think he's uh, working with actors late in his career better than he ever has before. Yeah, um, I'm actually with you, Dom. Reservoir Dogs is also my favourite of uh, Tarantino's film. That film just, uh, it was a concise punch to the gut. Um, and I felt like uh, with the last few films of his, he's been just hopping genre to genre to genre. And we're kind of expected to ask ourselves, what? how's Tarantino going to handle this genre? How's he going to handle uh, doing a World War II film? Or a, a samurai 70s uh, martial arts flick? Or a western? And given they did Django, which, you know, he calls it a southern but everyone thinks it's a Western. He's going back to doing a Western, so how's it going to stand out from Django? And so I was kind of, um, I was more intrigued than anything to see what he'd do. It sounds a bit like uh, you have a view of Tarantino's career that he's a bit like Will Ferrell is a basketball player, Will Ferrell is a race car driver, do Will not Ferrell's s- gone back to being a, a Do basketball not say I'm comparing again. Tarantino to Will Ferrell. I'm totally putting those words in your mouth, that just happened. Um, okay, well, with, with that established, uh, we all saw Hateful Eight. Um, Don, where did you see the film? I saw it at um, the Landmark Theatre in Los Angeles. I went to one of the roadshow screenings where they play the overture and it's screened and it's, it's projected in 70mm and they have an intermission. And uh, the Landmark is a, it's a multiplex, but it's kind of like a, kind of a high-end Rialto type of one where they really do put an emphasis on the, um, the purity of the experience. And it's kind of like the Arclight where they have someone come out front and sort of give a little speech and stuff. 
Um, I was I, I had a really great experience watching it. I was it was a it was an eleven a.m. screening and it was totally packed and I was kind of I sort of woke up and went straight there and it was I was a bit sort of susceptible and uh, from the overture onwards I was just gripped to the screen. I got to say though, going into this, I had a kind of skewed experience. I should admit to this. I'm sure it enhanced my viewing of the film, which is in that I'm a huge Agatha Christie fan, and I'd heard a lot of murmurings that he was doing a riff on Agatha Christie. And then, and I'm totally not trying to drop names here, but I, I was hanging out with Zoe Bell a few months ago, and she um, mentioned that it did have this whole Agatha Christie vibe, and that. Samuel L. Jackson was kind of like the Hercule Poirot of it. And that just got me so excited. Um, I sort of did build up some more anticipation before I saw the film. Did, and did you find that, that, that the film delivered on that? Absolutely. I mean, not in a kind of direct way. There wasn't necessarily a murder that had to be solved. But just in, in, in Tarantino's sort of stated aim to have a whole lot of people in a room and you've never been quite sure who, who's what the motivations of each of them are. They could all be lying. They could all be telling the truth. That that dynamic, I thought, was just explored beautifully um, in this film and sustained really well. I felt like his 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 plot mechanics, the, they're still kind of loose and they're still kind of like he holds on to things longer than he should and he lets go of things later than he should. But I thought the way the revelations came out in this film, it didn't matter that they were kind of not much of a surprise or anything. It was sort of more about the general tone of their interactions and, and just, I thought the, um, the post civil war aspect, he's kind of shied away from saying this is an allegory, but it's hard not to see it as a, as a kind of a wonderful treatise on the idea of America and how it's, how it's got sort of blood at its core and, and, and the idea of America can only take us so far and at the end we're all going to shoot each other anyway. And uh, I, I, I thought it almost kind of um, was a little bit profound at times. The whole Lincoln letter thing I just thought played out beautifully. He, he played me like a piano on every, every part of that story. I was right there. I, like I was Kurt Russell and with that storyline. I loved it. With those, uh, with those sort of thematic things in play, that's there's definitely there's definitely that level that the film operates on. But from a pure, like a purely uh, a purely simple audience perspective, Paul, how were you feeling when the lights came up? Just shy of three hours uh, of film. I foolishly hadn't really done any research, and I didn't know that it was three hours long, and so um, I hadn't eaten. And uh, there's something about the experience, and I think the experience Dom had in, in watching it in the morning after you first got up and gone to the cinema is a different experience than turning up at 6.30, not realising it's a three-hour film. The film doesn't start till quarter past seven. Uh, you know, actually, there was some murmuring ar around me because people were saying, oh, the, I hear there's an intermission because that's obviously, is that how they show it in the States? Or do, do well, there's two, there's two versions of it. There's what right. they call the, ro okay. the roadshow version and, and that's then there's the, one the general release version. Right, okay. So anyway, and there's murmurings of people saying, oh, we're going to leave at intermission because it was, you know, but that was just the experience of, you've got to plan a three-hour <laughs> three movie, you've got to plan it. You, you've got to, you can't and just turn up. And then the intermission up. never came. And the intermission so never bad. came. <laughs> and, and a good friend, a mutual friend of ours, Dom, um, was on, on the way home in the car, was berating you because you'd given it a five-star review on Flix. <laughs> and that was going fucking Dom he told me this was oh. going to be a good film this is, I swore I'd never see another Tarantino after Glorious Bastards it was it, well, that, that, that was hilarious she, she, she's anomalous she, she, she never agrees or likes anything no that's true um, but, but I will point out that 
I, there was an intermission in the version I saw, and it was a weird, it was a yeah, bizarre like? experience. It was like waking up uh, at the end of a long plane flight, and there's someone you've been sitting next to, and you kind of like have to look them in the eye and go, oh, yeah, you're another human being, and I have to deal with you, and we're all kind of yeah. slightly kind of relaxed and in the dark, and I found it quite disconcerting, but it was a nice break, because I got, went and got a coffee, and... But I didn't. I enjoyed the film, and it, it was uh, way too long. But you know, maybe that was tempered a bit by my my state of um, hanger. But I, there were big chunks of it. I was like, you could just take that out, just take that bit out. And but you know, it, as a, as a film, it had all those things that I like in Tarantino. Had the great lines. It had had it had the nice touches of humour. I, I, for some reason, I loved the door. The whole idea of that door oh, that needed yes, to be nailed totally. shut. I thought that was a piece of genius. That door is a whore. That door is a whore. <laughs> and I think my fa- and I loved Zoe Bell. With, you know, it, being a New Zealander and that great line, which I think will play really well, especially outside of Auckland, which is "What the fuck's in Auckland?" That <laughs> yeah. Cowboy's talking to her. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I've got some. Uh, I've got some audio uh, of my interview with Tarantino that I'm going to th- we'll throw to now, um, and we'll come back. Uh, after he addresses that exact topic. Thank you for uh, validating our provincial Antipodean backwater by uh-huh. A, being here for, uh, <laughs> for the film and continuing to put New Zealand on the big screen. That's much appreciated. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, it must be something that happens whenever there's a uh, non-Los Angeles or non-major metropolitan place. They get very excited when they're in movies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I, I did kind of figure that uh, uh, the shout out that Auckland gets in the film would uh, have a resonance here. Oh, there's all sorts of moments that we have. The end of Point Break. Anyway, this yeah, yeah, that right, happens yeah, all yeah. the time. Uh, it was very exciting last night to see the, the, the title come up, the eighth film by Quentin Tarantino. Uh-huh. Um, I don't want to ask you about Ten and Out because that's like the question that's constantly asked. But what I was thinking about was that uh, numbering convention of your films. Do you remember when you first thought that was a good idea to do? And and uh, yeah, how did that come about in the first place? Well, you know, it's like funny because, I mean, you know, uh, uh, some people can uh, uh, criticize it as saying that I, it's like... Uh, uh, megalomaniac self-mythology, and maybe it is a little bit, all right? But uh, 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 but I do actually like the countdown aspect, especially as, as it's gotten uh, 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 deeper into it. Um, where I was coming from in particular, though, uh, in the case of uh, 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 Colin Kill Bill Volume 1, the fourth film by Quentin Tarantino, was uh, the fact that I'd, uh, I'd done three films uh, up until that point. And then I didn't work for like six years because I was just doing a lot of writing at that time. So there was kind of a, 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 a big aspect of, of me coming back and saying sure. that this yeah. is my fourth film. <laughs> Good, bad, or indifferent, or you know, uh, uh, highfalutin or not, I decided to do it anyway. Awesome. Well, yeah, it's rolling along really well now. Um, that brings us to Hateful Eight. And uh, I don't want... Like Walton Goggins in the film, I don't want to get us talking political. Yeah, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. He, he really finds himself caught in an awkward conversation yeah. there. But I'm going to do it anyway. Sure, um, one of the One of the uh, timely aspects I thought about the film last night was it's set in an era where America's come through a very divisive period. Yeah. I'm not dealing with the aftermath of you know, having two opposite sides coming together. Yeah. And it's kind of feels a little bit where America is politically now. Yeah. So the more argumentative the two sides get, they're going to find a time where they have to sit down around the same table or, yeah. or in the same haberdashery yeah, yeah. And, th- and thrash it out. Uh, mm-hmm. is, is, was that sort of one of the things that you're drawing upon <laughs> in, in writing it? No, that's the one. I mean, well, it's one of the things that ended up springing up in the course of the movie as I was writing it. I don't know if that was necessarily uh, what I was thinking about when I wrote that first scene. You know where Major Warren is talking himself onto the stagecoach, but that's where it ended up going. And I even remember 
uh, writing the sequence with uh, Mannix and uh, Warren have their, their argument and their debate. And when it was over, I was surprised at how political it got. And when it was finished, I was like, oh my God, this could almost be Fox News having a debate with MSNBC to some degree or another. And it really kind of highlighted the blue state, red state uh, uh, place yeah. of, uh, or in their case, a uh, 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 blue state, gray state uh, uh, era that they were in that actually is disturbingly reflective of the era that we are go living through now. Um, one of, the, uh, one of the, the great things that comes about by virtue of the setting, the, the, mm -hmm. the bottle episode type setting yeah, of, the, yeah, yeah. Of, of, of the film, is that uh, I'd use this in a, in a dismissive way for some films, but in this case I really enjoyed the theatricality of some of the performances. So yeah, that it's too. very very much a case of the, your troupe of actors getting the chance to actually tread boards and perform. Oh, well said, yeah. Uh, it was, is that, is that a, a definite intention on your part? Oh yeah, no, no that was definitely the... Uh, um that was definitely the idea of the movie, was to, uh, uh, you know, in a way, like Reservoir Dogs, have the limitation of the one room, and, and the um, and and then trying to use that as a as a suspense piece, that you have all these tricky characters trapped in one room, they can't go anywhere. There's a blizzard outside that might as well be a monster in a monster movie, waiting to devour them if ever they leave, and the fact that nobody's a good guy, everyone's sort of everyone everyone's a scoundrel to one degree or another. And, uh, uh, and no one can trust anybody. And one of the ideas that I kind of had that was similar to what I tried to do in um, Reservoir Dogs and um, you know, a bit similar to what John Carpenter did in his um, remake of The Thing, which also had Kurt Russell, uh, was the idea that the, it's a study of paranoia as well. And the thing about it is the entrapped situation that they're in, the idea was that the paranoia is so strong that it bounces off the walls to such a degree that it has nowhere else to go but through the fourth wall and hopefully into the audience. Awesome. Uh, it was great. Um, it was great seeing that uh, sequence of uh, inching out of the haberdashery over the ropes. That was a great, oh, yeah, yeah, great yeah, the yeah, thing yeah. moment. It's really, really <laughs> yeah. welcome. Um, uh, we're almost out of time. That's really disappointing, but we'll just carry on nonetheless. Um, there's a film that I'm going to see tomorrow night. It's sort of uh, it's a place called Academy Cinemas. It's a bit like <laughs> it's a bit like Cinema Village, where in Greenwich Village, where mm -hmm. I saw Grindhouse. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. um, they're playing a film called Jackie Brown tomorrow night. Oh yeah, I heard it actually. Uh, there was a couple of uh, fans at the uh, theater the other night, and then they were talking about they were going to go see Jackie Brown t uh, tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, is there anything that you'd say to people that are about to, about to watch Jackie Brown for the first time? Oh, uh, good thing. Um, I love Jackie Brown. I think Jackie Brown's, uh, um, I think it's one of my best movies, but I think all my movies are one of my best movies. All right, uh, but I'm, I'm biased. Uh, uh, but, you know, one of the things I think that's really lovely about uh, uh, Jackie Brown, it'll be very interesting uh, for people uh, who are maybe seeing it for the first time. Uh, but one of the things that I feel about Jackie Brown is it's, it's a hangout movie. Now, like a lot of my movies, it's like you'll watch it the first time, and then there's a whole story going on, and, you gotta, and, you're, and you're following the course of the story. And then the surpri there's surprises, and then they get revealed, and, and then that's that. But then I wanted Jackie Brown to f be lived in. I wanted you to really feel like you get to know these characters, and you're, you're living with them, and you're hanging out with them. And so when, if you visit it again in, during the course of your life, every you know three years or five years or something like that, I want it to be like a hangout movie, like in the, similar to uh, something like Days and Confused or Rio Bravo, or other hangout movies. So if you watch it again, it's almost like they're your friends. 
you're you're having uh, uh, you're smoking cigarettes with Jackie. You're you're taking bong hits with Melanie and Lewis. You're drinking screwdrivers with Ordell. You know, and that, that, that's kind of how I wanted the film to have a feeling of. I'm absolutely doing bong rips with those guys. Oh, yeah, there you sure. go, yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Quentin. It's good chatting to you. Oh, me too, mate. Enjoy the rest of stay here. I sure will. Let's keep, let's keep whipping this along. Um, so before we, before we heard from Tarantino, uh, we heard from Paul and Dom talking about how they felt when the film wrapped. Liam, what was your take on it as you uh, exited the theatre? Um, I was really entertained by it, more by the, first, uh, by the second half than the first However, yeah, I also have to say it's uh, a bit too fucking long as well. And while I do love a lot of the speechifying when it's relevant, I feel like he just does it all the time. And sometimes just to explain simple shit. Like, I mean, I can't whip out an example, but uh, it's like he has to explain there's uh, one horse has a broken leg. He has to first break down that there are six horses attached to the carriage and that four of the horses are just your plain uh, fucking run-of-the-mill horses but there are two horses one named mule one named daisy or some shit and daisy and you see where i'm going with this everything has a backstory with tarantino and in comparison to say like reservoir dogs i did feel like it could have been more concise to really give it more of a suspenseful impact it's a bit of a trade-off, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you kind of want him to go ape shit and utterly indulgent because that's a space where hardly any other filmmakers go and he's got a real knack for, for doing it in his own inimitable style. But yeah, it's a very long film. I uh, My sort of take on it was that you have to really like the most talky aspects of Tarantino films, I think, to get to get stuff out of this. It's, not, it's a very... Uh, it's a very basic premise. It's got very familiar tropes, but it's it's really long and it's really talky. And to get to the parts that have got more action in it, you've got to you do have to you will have to be able to enjoy characters yapping to one another for quite a long time. Yeah, I, I think I kind of totally see I agree with kind of both those points. What you were saying, Liam, is kind of almost how I saw Django and in, in Glorious Bastards, where I was just like is this really necessary to stop everything and talk for 20 minutes where, with all this unnecessary dialogue? It's kind of like a, it almost is like the um, the audio version of what uh, Birdman did with its camera where by linking it all together, you're just seeing all this unnecessary stuff. But um, so, which is why I was so surprised that I loved The Hateful Eight so much because it's that even gone even further and kind of just, it's he takes that to the next level. And so I guess... Part of why I loved it so much is I guess I was sort of settling in and, and stealing myself for a lot of that. And then it, it played out very episodically. And yeah, there's, you could boil the plot down in about 10 minutes. But I just found its ponderousness and its uh, it all just kind of worked together. There was just something quite indescribably um, beautiful about the way that all gelled in a way that really surprised me because I am very susceptible to that indulgent aspect i mean i'm susceptible to being intolerant towards that indulgent aspect of tarantino's later works did anyone keep a count of inwards during the film 179 so you're you were you were, you were just cut you were, you were carving that into the back of the seat I've, in front of you i've got one of those little clickers that they have when you get on the ferry or, or a bus or something. <laughs> uh and they're also quite it's a, a lot very violent film too it is a very violent film um i think probably of all the sort of taboo aspects of it the one that I found most affecting in the theatre was the amount of uh, male to female violence in the film. Uh, oh, that, that not was, being a fuddy duddy, but there's just something really, uh, just something odd about uh, a film sort of taking glee and watching a woman get punched in the face by a big dude. It's just not something you see every day. Yeah. And uh, she, she was, I, I, but she was really ferocious. Was oh, abso- glee in that? Absolutely, no, she was. She was ferocious, and and the justification behind it is that 
uh, he wasn't treating her differently to any of the male characters. But there's still... N-bombs do lose the impact when you get to past, like, the 50th. Yeah. But punching a woman hard in the face just doesn't. <laughs> well, blowing doesn't someone's get well, blowing someone's head off, you know, it's 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 the it's this is the world we're in. You can't really think too deeply about it. And I think that the whole arguments or conversations about the political, you know, the historical, you know, underpinnings of it and stuff that also doesn't go very far because it's quite a. I I, I feel to me Tarantino is like a fifteen year old boy who's grappling with history. He's not like it, it doesn't really go very deep. And in the end, he just use it seems like he uses whatever. The evilness is whether it's the Nazis or whether it's slavery or whether it's um, you know uh, abuse against women in other films. He, he, the excuse to then blow someone's head off or talk to them or whatever, you know, the rape scene in Pulp Fiction, you know, then they're going to get medieval on his ass. This is that's always an excuse to just be even worse. <laughs> so you can't really go too deep on that stuff with Tarantino. That was also uh, just one of my problems with. Uh this movie in particular was the violence, and that's because they chose to go for more of a kill billish uh, level of gore. And the issue with that is that when it's a confined, suspenseful thriller, and you're wondering who's going to be picked off or what, um, when someone does get picked off, it kind of feels like you should be laughing at the death rather than being shocked by it, as in mm. that person losing their life. And that is, I can't spoil one particular death, but uh, I was I was being overridden by the fact that this character was dead. Because of the way that person died, I just had to laugh at it, sort of distractingly. Yeah. Well, his death's always funny, though, aren't they, really, in a sense? He, d- he does seem to take a lot of pleasure in eliciting awkward laughs as well. So using having, uh, having inward punchlines to gag. So, like, it's a funny gag. It's hit the punchline. You're laughing, but you're laughing quite uncomfortably because you've been, you've been triggered into doing something which part of you is sort of questioning slightly. Yeah. I, I, I love the confinedness of that... Of that room in the blizzard I for me the first half was kind of a bit of a, a, a bit to get through really the whole carriage ride but that confinement and I you know and also reminded me that you know the great the great scene in bastards where the you know the family were carrying under the floorboards as well because it has that element to it too but I there's there's so many little pieces and items in it and lines and characters that were that were fantastic but um, it just it's you know it took a long time to get there and in the end you know what the punchline's going to be someone's going to die and it's going to there'll be a lot of blood and, and that's kind of it I think it's going to stand up to a lot of rewatching this film because uh, you take pleasure in those small elements like as, as you said you know where it's going um, and it's just a sort of a matter of like how long is it going to take to get there and, and the actual devils and the details but um, but just the way the characters interact uh, I would love the chance Kurt to see Russell it on 17 Kurt, Kurt Russell was wonderful seeing him and Again, in that kind of, he was he was awesome. He was really drawing on the stuntman Mike sort of character from Death Proof and exaggerating that another notch further. Like his, uh, the this actually comes through in quite a few of the performances. There's a real theatricality to them, and uh, sometimes that can be negative. But it really worked in this film because there was just a really strong uh, sense at times that you were watching people on a stage rather than yeah. on a screen. It, it felt like a stage, a really great stage play. And um, I thought Walton Goggins was fantastic. Oh, he was amazing. I he loved him so much. He's he was got, so funny. Isn't he great? Really? He should, have played, he should have played the young Bill Paxton in, the, in Terminator Genesis when they went back to <laughs> the punks. <laughs> hey, I got to say, um, I kind of agree with a lot of these assessments, but I think this is a film that... 
um, suffers when kind of lumped in with a what should we do this afternoon kind of assessment. Like a kind of let's go see a movie. It, there's a lot of problematic aspects to it. You're right. The female violence is troubling. And but but I sort of think that the whole violence thing with Tarantino is another argument altogether. But at the same time, I think if, if you're someone who enjoys ambition in, in movies and kind of is willing to go for something a little bit hardcore that maybe tries your patience, I sort of think this this really de- rewards people who are willing to sort of go along with it, if you know what I mean. The serious of the world are going to probably be put off at some point. But um, but I sort of I want to make it clear that if you're a if you're a movie nerd, come on guys, you've got to admit this movie's pretty oh, awesome. Absolutely, Shit, yes. but, but but because of its length, you have to plan your uh, your. Att- it's like a mountain. You've got to plan your attack, be well prepared, be well fed, True. and the, and True. and take it. But it is it's a cha- it's a challenging movie, but it's a really interesting and it's a great movie, no doubt. And on that, it's a huge it's bummer a- that that it's not playing in seventy millimeter down there and at the roadshow yeah. version because it's kind of ironic that for a film that's using this expansive uh, lens is mainly set inside. But what it means is it, you just get all these different people in the frame at the same time and you're seeing different corners of the room at the same time and it really helps build the tension. Yeah, yeah, we don't, well, have, we don't have that in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. I told you he'd shit on us if we got yeah, the chance. I <laughs> um, one thing I can't believe I used to live there. <laughs> I know, what were you thinking? Um, one thing that uh, would be, I think, a, a really interesting viewing experience that as elitist uh, media types we've all dodged is uh, just going back to the idea that you're sort of signing up for a, a, a bigger, uh, slightly more difficult experience than your normal, like, let's just go to the movies. So I'm kind of figuring that even if the audience uh, in a cinema isn't huge, that you're going to feel this like camaraderie of... We're about to watch a Tarantino film. Most of the people there probably know to some degree what they're in for. And I think there'll be that, that, that collective uh, enthusiasm would be quite contagious, apart from, apart from if, uh, if, if the serial uh turned up by accident. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, gonna, po- I'm bleeping her name every single time for, com- <laughs> no, for, com- no, for comic effect, by the way. I want listeners to take away from this is that serial is a big square and should never be listened to when it comes to movies. <laughs> awesome. What make a man brave a blizzard kill in cold blood? I'm sure I don't know. You'd be surprised what a man would do. <laughs> you starting to see pictures, ain't you? Got room for one more? I ain't too anxious to be handing out rides. Real trusting fella, huh? Not so much. Ain't no way I'm spending a couple of nights under a roof with somebody I don't know who they are. So who are you? Okay, everybody, hear this. I'm taking this woman to hang. For awards, $10,000. That money's mine, boys. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Hold on! You think I'll make a hoose with that fella or her? That's my problem, boy. I don't know. One of them fellas will kill everybody in here. Now we're talking! 
Let's slow it down. Let's slow it way down. When you get to hell, tell them Daisy sent you. You don't die now! No one said this job's supposed to be easy. <laughs> Nobody said it's supposed to be that hard, neither. And now that we've come back from that, uh, Liam, you've got a film to recommend if you're at home and not watching The Hateful Eight. Yeah, um, it's actually been a few weeks since we've done this, so I looked through the entire catalogue and um, I noticed that uh, there's a Zac Efron movie that just came out where he plays um, an aspiring DJ who's a bit troubled because he's not quite where he wants to be because he he, he's oh not God. an Instagram star. Jesus um, It's called We Are Your Friends. And that is not the movie I'm going to recommend. It's actually a French DJ film that's the good version of it called Eden. And that came out in 2014, but it's finally hit a uh, Madman release. And it's kind, of, it's kind of like that movie, except if it was set in the 90s and told what it was really like to be a DJ. And in part, it sort of plays parallel to the uprising of Daft Punk, which is quite a cool way to do a bi biopic, except you're not... You're not uh, following Daft Punk. You're following a guy who was never going to be Daft Punk. And he, he finds some mild success in the, uh, the, French, uh, in the French dance scene, just doing nightclubs and um, managing to tour in the US for a little bit. But he never hits the peak like a lot of the people that he meets along the way. And the movie is set into two halves. One is when um, dance music was really hitting a rise in the, late, in the mid to late 90s. And then the second half... It's kind of like the sequel that I want We Are Your, uh, we are your Friends to Be, which is his absolute decline um, trying, to keep, um, trying to keep his dance music pure while people are just moving on and shit. It's kind of brutal. And um, the movie transitions about 20, 25 years and nails every single era pretty, uh, pretty flawlessly without hey, needing hey. a huge budget. Yes, Liam, I've t I've totally seen that film. I agree with everything you just said. That isn't a, 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 a nice movie. And I actually interviewed the director of that, Mia Hanson Love. It's inspired by the life of her brother, who was a DJ called Sven Hanson Love. Oh, real? How and, much? And, inspired. And, and he was like friends with, as she said at the time, Giman and Thomas, which is how you refer to Daft Punk if they're your friends. Um, and um, <laughs> is that how and, you refer to Daft Punk? Well, I might from this point onwards, but um, but yeah, I love the way they're kind of background characters, and there's a ru there's a running joke in the film about how they never get led into clubs because no one knows what they look like. <laughs> and but there's also a great moment in the film uh, that I noticed that uh, it's sort of around. There's a scene set in the late '90s, and they're talking about Daft Punk, and one guy hasn't heard of Daft Punk, and the other guy's like, they've only put out like a few sort of uh, mixtapes or something at that point. And this one guy's like, where have you been? The, the translation reads, where have you been? Mars and, and the subtitles. But he actually says, if you listen, he says, where have you been? Nouvelle-Zélande? And, uh, <laughs> and I actually said to Mia Henson Love, I said to her, I said, you know that we were pretty, we, I remember that time, like in, in 98, we knew about Daft Punk. We were all on top of that stuff. And she was like, no, no, no. 
this was when the early mixtapes came out and nobody knew about it. And I was kind of, I was like, no, no, we were, we were early adopters. I had this kind of little argument about it with her about it. But yeah, I completely agree. Eden is a really cool film that, that I think would have a, I, I talked about it ages ago. I thought it would have a New Zealand audience. I'm so glad it's coming out there because it kind of does feel quite familiar, Alien. Yeah, it actually played a little bit at the uh, French Film Festival last year. Um, That's right. Yeah, and I also, um, I also really like the ending, Dom, because it's so extremely typically French art house, except it completely nails its point <laughs> in a yeah, really, really totally. sad, dark way. But, but it's, it's sort of, of awesome. like it shows how to to to, to adopt to approach a, a topic like that. You can't have it be a rocky story like We Are Your Friends. It has to be kind of melancholy and kind of grim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um. But also, there's a bunch of um, figures from uh, the French house movement who play themselves in it as well. And they call it the French touch, which is they say the word touch like an English person says it. They say the, they call it the French touch. But no one in, in the English-speaking world calls it that, so it's kind of weird. No, that, that refers to something else. <laughs> it also refers to Eden it's just before you do have to do the French exit um, one question about the film uh, do, do they make DJing look convincing slash not stupid on screen because uh, it's, it hasn't really been depicted very well in, in film so far because it's, it's really just, just people playing it's kind of just more it's, got, it's like there's lots of scenes like in the back rooms and it's about guys just trying to put on parties and sort of then get in there and there's no one there. And, you know, it's got that kind of, like I said, that grimness to it that gives it a sense of authenticity. It's definitely not just like check out how much his arms are waving around and how much he's got the crowd pumping. It's kind of more about, you know, like, oh, I got $20 for that gig. Sounds super, super familiar. So it's not the Kim.com music video that's just come out. No. Have, have you seen that? The, the $24 million I, one? I, I actually haven't. Yeah, have a look. It's pretty funny. Yeah, it turns out it's quite I, expensive to rent, to rent boats, I think is the sort of overriding uh, lesson to be learned in that. Right. This movie has Sounds one like... boat. Oh, that's, well, that's good. Maybe, that, maybe, maybe, this is, maybe we've, we've adopted a new scale to, uh, to rate these home video releases just on, on the number of boats. Guys, thanks very much for joining us for a chat today. Um, listeners out there, I hope you've enjoyed listening to us. And we'll be back again talking about some other new release films very, very soon. Cheers. Cheers. Hello. Qu'est-ce qui vous plaît dans cette musique Le côté robot de la musique électronique avec la chaleur qui apporte la saule. On sent les, les DJ en devenir là. Alors c'est vous le petit jeu de garage dont tout le monde parle C'est qui ces mecs Thomas Eggman Sur des sons, t'as jamais entendu ça Thomas. Thomas et Daft Punk. Je crois pas qu'on tient longtemps à faire le DJ, j'espère. Vous pourriez me prêter 2000 francs T'as pas les moyens de te payer l'eau chaude, mais je t'achète quand même le t-shirt chez Paul Smith. Question de priorité. Je te prête 1000 balles, mais tu me les rembourses. Bah, je vais te prêter 1000 aussi pour ta coke. Tu t'es fait une poutresse, quoi. <rire> On part à New York, là. Ouais, partez sans moi, je le sens pas. Je t'ai demandé de venir, c'est parce que j'ai besoin de toi. Parce que quand t'es pas là, je suis triste. Peut-être que maintenant, il faudrait vous ouvrir sur des choses un peu plus modernes. Je ne demande pas de faire du David Guetta, ça j'ai compris. Hein.
De toute façon, je vais faire un break avec les soirées. Ça me déprime de vivre la nuit. C'est beau la jeunesse. J'ai 34 ans. T'as de la chance d'avoir trouvé ton équilibre en tirant un trait sur le passé comme ça. C'est vrai, j'y pense moi aussi. Vos noms Thomas et Guiman. Eh ben non, je vous ai pas. En plus, je vais vous dire la vérité, j'ai un petit souci de dress code, là. 